Welcome to PS, the Puget Sound podcast where we're talking to members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker and my guest today is Sophie Semenjak, a junior from Los Angeles, California. As always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio right here in Tacoma. And here's Sophie. Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really happy to have you. You know this because you are here, but I was just saying to you how excited I am to see you because <laughs> it's been so long. I know. It's definitely really, really nice to see you too. I feel like being in quarantine and just away from campus has made seeing familiar faces so much more special. Yeah. Well, and I think also because everybody left so abruptly, which of course was the right thing to do. Right. Um, but it's it was sad. Campus was empty for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, so the way that it worked out for me was I, I I don't know why I remember the date specifically, but I think it was kind of like we had got the email March 24th and it was basically, it was right before spring break. So it was like, you know, don't, don't plan on coming back, which was very unfortunate, but true. Um, and so I had a round trip ticket. I was like coming, I was like, the plan was to leave and then come back the next Friday or Saturday as if. Were you going home or were you going? On yeah, vacation? I was going home for spring break. Yeah. Um, so I had a round trip ticket. So I was just going to come back. Um, so I, you know, ended up using that round trip ticket, but then bought another one way ticket back. So I was fortunate to come back up kind of that week after when, you know, things were still open to collect your belongings. Um, but that it was really sad to see campus the way that it was. It, 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 it's like (laughs) one of the things that's so funny about being staff after having been a student is going to work on campus every day in the summer or over spring break or whatever, even in normal times when everybody's gone, because it's not supposed to be empty like that. Like there's supposed to be an extra 2,500 people. And when there's not, it's sort of startling. And then it was that way for the whole spring. Although, obviously, at a certain point, we weren't on campus either. Right. Um, but it, it'll be really nice when everybody is back and it feels full and yeah. happy. No, I'm really, really excited. I just keep trying to, you know, kind of pace myself and what my expectations are for going back. I'm really excited for in-person learning. But, you know, undoubtedly, things are going to be a lot different than they were. But it'll just be nice to have Puget Sound in any capacity possible. Well, and one of the things that makes me feel good to hear you say that is I've been over the last couple months, obviously because of my job, doing a lot of talking with the families of what will be our incoming students. So students in the class of 2024 who have just all decided yesterday, we're recording um, on a Tuesday and, uh, June 1st was the sort of date for everybody to decide if they were going to come to Puget Sound. Um, And a lot of the questions that I've been fielding from those folks, either as they made their decision or after they made their decision, is will you be open? What will it look like? What's going to happen? And right now, even though we plan to be open, obviously the world is kind of a big question mark. And one of the things I've been holding on to for myself is that like, this is a good place and trying to convey to folks that have not yet had that lived experience of Puget Sound is coming back to any part of this is good, is additive, is net positive, is going to feel good. Right. Um, It's, it's nice to hear you say that unprompted also. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm really, really excited. And um, 
there have been a lot of changes uh, like with this semester, obviously, but I'm one of those people that likes to plan everything a year in advance. And, you know, my five-year plan is very meticulous. Um, But, you know, there's, and I'm, again, not somebody that particularly enjoys it, enjoys, you know, surprises. So, you know, again, I'm very, very fortunate to be in the situation that I am and, you know, to have the capabilities that I do. But um, I think a big part of this for me has also been preparing myself for the differences that, Puget Sound is going to present next year and you know also personal changes that that's going to present me with like what will I not be able to do what will my routine not look like Um, but at the same time I'm hoping and holding out that those will also welcome new things and teach me new things too so I'm excited for all of it Um, change is a good thing so and do you feel at all for yourself like that sort of ambiguity is I mean, this is a big silver lining, but it's sort of a, an additive thing in your life too. Cause like, I'm also an extreme planner. I would in college make like, this is such an embarrassing thing to say out loud, like color coded Excel documents for like, well, if I major in this thing and then I minor in this thing, like which classes count for both and how many credits is that? Of course. And the, <laughs> my first job was a job that involved a lot of travel. And as anybody I think knows who has traveled, like when you're on the road, a certain percentage of things go wrong and you just have to fix them. And that's the way it is. And the ambiguity of that, of like not being able to be in control of all of those things, I now am aware was such a positive thing for me that I'm curious if this feels at all for you. Like, okay, like my hand is kind of forced here, but I'll let go. I'll see what happens. Yeah. And that'll be the way it'll be. Yeah. I, hmm. I think, I think that, it's important to learn how to adapt to things. Um, but I also, you know, am not on the other side of that yet. Like we haven't experienced the thing besides spring semester, you know, being sent online in terms of next year there, those things haven't happened yet. So while I'm anticipating them, I feel like, you know, I won't have the lessons (laughs) until, until those have happened. But, um, I'm, you know, honestly excited either way. I think that um, one of the most important things that I've ever been told is that nothing ever goes the way that you planned it to. And that's so true in every regard. I think that even if you plan something out, you should always expect at least one thing to go wrong. And, you know, whether it's planning a birthday party, studying for a test, planning a class schedule, scheduling your games, whatever, like there's always something that is going to go ha- go wrong or at least unexpected. Um, and I think there absolutely is a certain beauty in being able to harness that and use it for the better. One of my favorite things like that is somebody said to me one time, I think right around the time I graduated from college, that a career is mostly something you have looking backwards, not forwards. And that was so striking to me is this idea that, okay, it's much easier to put a narrative together in hindsight Mm -hmm. than it is to stand and look forward and say, this is how this is going to evolve. Right. I wonder if you sort of following that logic, when you think about the narrative of your college experience thus far, and this is a hard thing to do for obvious reasons, but maybe absent the coronavirus, (laughs) which has kind of flipped the table, but what felt characteristic about it for you? If you think about 
your first year and then the first part of your second year in college, what was that evolution like? What did you notice? What did you experience? What stood out? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I I often think I I'm a big believer that, you know, progress is not linear and mm. there are highs and lows and squiggly lines and loop-de-loops and things all over the place that make it not a straight line. Um, I think throughout my first year at Puget Sound, I really embraced a lot of like being as busy as possible and really sticking my hand in every single bowl and, you know, seeing what I liked and seeing what I didn't like. Um, I was always, I was definitely always busy, which I enjoyed for sure. And I loved learning that about myself. I loved learning that, um, you can do a lot of things if you want to, but at the same time, a really, really important lesson that I learned was that the size of everybody's plate is different. And I think that, you know, whether you want to fill that plate with, you know, only studying or half studying, half sports, quarter studying, quarter sports, quarter whatever, like (laughs) that's your plate. It's as big as you want. You can put as much as you want on it, or you can put as little different quantities, all kinds of things from the activity pyramid. Um, (laughs) And I think, I think that that was one of the, the biggest lessons and one of the the most productive things that I took away from freshman year. Um, And then sophomore year, so the beginning, the first semester of this year um, was really transformative in kind of picking out what I wanted to do and kind of specialize in certain student organizations and clubs and things like that. Um, And to give a little bit of more context to that, Um, My first year, I was involved in a lot of like random, really fun clubs. Like I was, you know, very, very sporadically in beekeeping club and kayaking club and like all of these things that I signed up for, but like never really went to the meetings or maybe went to one meeting or um, things like that. Or I was involved in ASAPs and I also participated in Greek life freshman year. Um, And, you know, I was also working in the campus visit program and, you know, being on the swim team. And now I am still involved in student life, but I've kind of honed in on what kind of clubs I want to be a part of. And my specific interest in clubs are, um, you know, government clubs that revolve around civic engagement or government or things like that. Um, Also, like student action. So I've really found a passion for those types of organizations. Um, And... I'm still involved in Greek life. I'm on the executive team of my sorority. And so that's been a challenge in itself, but it's also been really rewarding. Um, Still swimming and, you know, a lot more passionate about my studies than I was for my first year. I think my first year, I kind of had this mixed bag of things that I thought I wanted to study, but I wasn't really sure. And as of now, I could not be more uh, like infatuated with what I'm studying now. So. Well, and walk us through what you are studying when you talk about how you've sort of narrowed in on that focus and figured out where some of those interests are, what are they? Yeah, good question. So I'm a double major in politics and government with a U.S. emphasis and international political economy. And then my minor is in global development studies. So it's definitely a mouthful, but it's a lot less (laughs) than it actually sounds like. And um, I'm really fortunate that Puget Sound affords me the opportunity to double major 
so smoothly. Um, I both of my majors, you can um, like cross cancel classes, and you know beyond that, there's a lot of concepts that overlap. So I've been really really fortunate to make that process as smooth as possible, which I think a lot of other students could agree with. Um, so my politics major, um, I love it. I think that the classes are very, very interesting, especially in the U.S. emphasis. Um, I was kind of concerned that going into being a U.S. politics major, I would be studying a lot of like how a bill gets passed, how law gets made and things like that. And, you know, I know some of those things, <laughs> like I, <laughs> I don't know if I could recite them for you right now, but I think what I have learned so far and what I'm looking forward to learning more about is how the institutions that we're a part of continue to shape us and continue to build us and continue to tear us down at, at the same time. Um, and again, depending on who you ask, those institutions can serve people differently or not serve them at all. Um, and I think in, you know, the current situation of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's I found myself especially fortunate to be educated on these types of things and, you know, advocate for educating others and reading as much as I can and, you know, having the resources as a U.S. politics major to go beyond, you know, what I'm learning in the classroom. And what I mean by that, that, can, that sounds kind of vague, I'm realizing, but what I mean by that is, you know, I have like you know, these books that I've been asked to read, but, you know, I can read beyond that too because of the academic resources that are available within the politics department and, you know, the Collins Library in general. So. Well, I, one of the things I have always thought is special about Puget Sound, and I'm hearing in what you're saying too, is the ability to apply your education. And I think this is kind of a hard concept to get your head around, especially if you're just coming out of high school, because, my experience of high school, I think many people's experience of high school is about acquiring knowledge in terms of fact, right? So learning how to solve a math equation, learning AP US history facts that you're going to be tested on, right? The sort of dates of events and the major players and those sorts of things. And Obviously, those things things still have relevance in college. It's part of understanding the world. But I think a college education and an education in a place like Puget Sound is much more about how do you ask thoughtful questions? Right. How do you how do you take in a situation or an idea or a concept, get the sort of foundational knowledge you need? So to your example, how does government work? But then how do you form your own questions in a way that are appropriate to the things you're experiencing in your world? Exactly. And that's much more applied than I think people often think of when they think about a college education or when they think about a liberal arts education. And I think to your point, that's sort of a hallmark of Puget Sound, right? Is that students are not just given the opportunity to, but sort of expected to think about like, okay, I'm building all these ideas and understanding how these systems work. Where do I see that happening in my life, in my community? Right, right. Or, you know, more commonly, where don't I see that happening? Where are these institutions not working for me? And what can I do as a U.S. citizen? What can I do, you know, with this information to more make institutions more accessible, more affordable, and more, you know, just accessible to other people? And where where can I, What? how are the ways in which 
we as people can hold the U.S. government accountable you know, and what, you know, what are the pillars of democracy when we see things like protests and when we see, you know, civil disobedience, it's, it's a very reassuring reminder that this is absolutely part of democracy and part of the United States. And, you know, I think this just goes back to reiterate your point that, you know, facts mean nothing until you can relate them to your world until you can expand upon that. Um, And something else I would really like to point out is I think that, One of the most valuable lessons or takeaways that I've gotten from my Puget Sound education so far is that I have been conditioned to look at problems and understand where they start first before trying to solve them or before trying to, you know, really solve the problem or even talk about it. Um, I think that... Puget Sound has conditioned me to be very cautious in making assumptions about what we see on the surface level of institutions and how they're serving, how they're serving people or how they're, you know, being branded for the United States and to think deeper and think, where did this institution start to begin with? Where, you know, how did we get this in the first place? Where did the first problems start? And once you can understand that, you can understand either the 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 um, relevance or the importance of the institution today. So that's my politics major. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but part of what you're gesturing to, I think is such a great microcosm of how education works, period, right? Is you learn one thing and then you can move from that into learning something else and into learning something else. And this is an audio medium. So I'm realizing no one can see what I'm doing (laughs) with my hands except you. And I'm kind of stair-stepping them like a ladder right? So that you, you move through these different ideas of how do you think about things. And one of the effects of the postmodern post-structural turn in the academy and in education is the idea that you can even then unpack those questions, Right. right? So not only, you know, maybe like a first level question is what, what is wrong with my world, with my community, with my institution, what's happening that's unjust, Maybe a second level question is why is that happening, right? right. What are the um, types of structures or interactions or histories that are telling that story and have set that story up? And then maybe a third level question is, well, what do we mean when we say equity? Right. Exactly. What do we mean when we say justice? When we think about a society, mm-hmm. right? What does that mean to us? What's our vision of that? Is that then a question that I share with is that really something that we, where we all have the same understanding or have we all actually defined those terms differently for ourselves? Right. And when I think about my education, that's a lot of what I think about in addition to a whole bunch of other stuff that I can go on about forever. But is, I remember very clearly thinking at various points throughout my college experience, but particularly at the end as I was about to graduate, that I could see how I had gotten smarter broadly mm-hmm. <laughs> right? but my questions were more thoughtful and sophisticated but also, but also the way that I approached asking questions was just more sophisticated right in terms of recognizing the limits of my ability to quote unquote know things right absolutely What do bakeries, industrial design, waterproof notebook paper, and investment management for cryptocurrencies have to do with each other? Hi, I'm Ryan Del Rosario, 
Assistant Director of Admission and School of Music Admission Coordinator. All four of the things I listed are businesses that were founded by entrepreneurial Puget Sound alums, and you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash stories. Now back to P.S., the Puget Sound podcast. Sophie, you are also doing something that I am so excited to hear about, which is when I emailed you and asked if you would be willing to come on the podcast and if there was anything special you wanted to talk about, you said very casually, well, I'm designing a class. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which does not seem to me like maybe a casual thing. <laughs> Will you walk me through what are you doing? What's happening? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Um, so I will preface with today I have actually received some news that plans might change a little bit, um, but that's okay. Lots of things are changing right now. So completely understandable. Um, but I'll just kind of start. Um, so a while ago, so, okay, backtrack. <laughs> Um, So my minor in global development studies is probably one of my favorite parts of my education in Puget Sound. Um, In short, it is everything that I've ever wanted to learn combined into a field of study that before coming to college, I didn't know existed. Um, And I'm beyond excited to, you know, finish that and hopefully pursue, you know, post-grad education in that capacity in one way or another. Um, so over, I believe it was over winter break. Um, I was reading a book. I'm a big reader. I love reading. Um, I was reading a moment of lift by Melinda Gates and Bill and Melinda Gates. It's so funny, just real quick that you say this because I'm sitting at the desk in my apartment and that book is literally within reach for me. Have you, it's, it's, like, it's like a foot and a half. I, I did. I read it on a series of airplanes last yeah. fall. And, <laughs> Liked it very much. It's incredible. Yes, it's one of my favorite books. Um, so the Bill and, Mel- Bill and Melinda Gates um, have one of the largest international nonprofits, um, not have, have started one of the largest international nonprofits um, that the world has ever have ever seen and has done some of the most incredible work. Um, and I think that it'd be kind of hard to find somebody dis- to disagree with that. So I was reading her book and she... For, any, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know or, you know, whatever, um, the book is about kind of what, what it means for international society when we uplift women, whether that is from an economic standpoint, um, a career standpoint, um, you know, cap- I've, any capability that you can think of <laughs> from an international scale is probably in this book, especially in terms of talking about uh, developing communities. Elena, is that, how do you, how would you best describe it? I feel like I have so obsessed over the book and so many other things that have gone beyond that I, like, it's hard for me to remember specifics of things like that. I think that was great. I would just say the subtitle on the book is, it's the moment of lift, and then in smaller type, how empowering women changes the world. There you go. that feels to me like exactly what you just said, but that's her summary of sort of what she's doing. Right, right. And the the book kind of follows a series of her narratives throughout her travels and the things that she's seen and the communities that she's been fortunate to visit. Um, and there was this one particular chapter on family planning, and I mm-hmm. had never heard of this. I was like, 
sounds obviously I'm going to keep reading because I'm reading the book. And family planning is basically, you know, the strategy in which governments or households or, you know, even just within relationships, social circles, socioeconomic status, how all of those factors talk about, advocate for, and implement birth control methods. Whether, you know, I don't need to get into specifics here, but whether that's the pill, whether that's an insertion or different types of sterilization. Um, And this chapter absolutely blew my mind because she was talking about how there's, how family planning is a huge field in just international relations. And I was like, it is? Like, I, (laughs) I had never heard of it before. And I felt kind of silly admitting that because I was like, this is what I'm studying. Like, this is my passion. I, you know, I'm passionate about empowering people and I'm passionate about international relations you know I consider myself a very radical feminist like it would make sense (laughs) that I would have heard of this at some point but no Um, our individual lives I think people understandably think of birth control as kind of a private thing absolutely I don't I'm happy to talk to anybody about their birth control but I don't go around asking a lot of women that I don't know very well in public what their family planning methods are. Right. 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 So to suddenly discover that something that I thought of for myself as something personal and that is personal for you in the choices that you're making for yourself. Right. Actually has these enormous economic and public health consequences. Part of her argument in this book is that that's one of the most fundamental things you can do to lift communities and societies out of poverty is increase access to family planning is suddenly just such a different framing. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I think especially, you know, in the bubble that I live in, it's, you know, you talk about birth control and that's it. It's not family planning. You know, it's, (laughs) I'm not at a point in my life where I'm planning on having a child anytime soon (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) But I think that that just, kind of layers on top of the fact why I hadn't heard about this because to me yeah. and my friends and my cousins, it's like just birth control. And it, that's just it for whatever reason that you're deciding to use it. Um, and again, had never thought about it as having these profound impacts on and uh, developing economies and societies and, you know, governments and, so, and other social impacts. So after reading that book, I was like, wow, imagine if like, if there were other books on this, like, does this exist? Like, like, can I find this elsewhere? Um, and I found a few books like, okay, but they didn't really catch my eye. And I, you know, I'll be honest, I haven't read through the entire book list that I have found yet. Um, but needless to say, it's not extensive and it's especially not friendly to my age group, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like it's all, you know, research that's been done, which is inarguably important, but not necessarily something that, you know, a 22 year old girl who's interested in international relations is going to pick up. Um, and again, I'm not 22. I don't know why I said that number, but I'm just (laughs) saying any young person would pick up and think like, Ooh, this looks particularly interesting. Um, which I think is important. I think it's important that we all look at this. Um, and I promise I'll get to the point, but, (laughs) um, Interesting. Going and like the way that Melinda Gates presented it was that it is not just a women's issue. Like the the idea that it impacts all of us 
I don't think is perceived enough that it impacts all of us, men, women, any person, any identity is affected by family planning and the social impacts that it causes. Um, and so then I was like, okay, where I was like, is there an online class that I can take? Where can I learn more? Who can I talk to? Like, this doesn't, you know, I just, I needed, I needed more information. And then I had this idea, like, what if, what if there was a class on it? Like, what if Puget Sound had a class on it? Um, and then I kind of tossed that idea out the window and was like, that's ridiculous. And I'm just, I'm not going to entertain that idea right now. Um, and then I came back to school and I was sitting with my friends and I remembered that before we had left for break, my friends and I were joking that I, I'm a very, I like to stay busy. I like to stay learning and reading. And so I had cracked a joke at the beginning of the break that I was going to assign myself a research paper, that I was going to assign myself something to learn about over, you know, the stretch of the month. And when we got back, my friend was like, oh, did you write a paper? And I was like, no, haha, like funny joke. Um, but then I was like, you know, I did have this crazy idea, though. And they were all like, what is it? And I was like, what if there was a class on family planning? Like, I read this book. It's important. Nobody here is really talking about it, at least to an, a degree that I had heard about. Um, and, you know, one of my closest friends, her name's Ginger, she is also an IPE major. And she was like, that's not crazy. Like, I would love to take it. I'm sure, like, especially, you know, with the campus climate that we live in, she's not the only person that would be interested in taking that. Um, so then I was like, all right, well, I have literally no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> literally, I... I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not getting an education degree. I don't know. Like I know literally nothing. I don't know where to start. So then I was like, okay, well, what do you do when you want to start a movement? Sign, get a petition, get people to sign it, hold some sort of community forum. Like, you know, I was kind of preparing myself to do all these things. I was like, what if I got a thousand signatures? What if I got blah, blah, blah. What if I got a guest speaker? What if I got funding? Um, so then I went to my IPE advisor, Lisa Nunn, and she was like, you know, I can't teach the class, but <laughs> I encourage you to look elsewhere like you could do it. And I was like, all right, that was kind of the first push that I needed. Um, and at the time I was taking intro to sociology and the professor that I have that class with, her name is Jennifer Utrata. She um, specializes like her research is in care work and in maternity. And specifically, she spent a lot of time in post-Soviet Russia looking at single mothers and that that community. Funnily enough, I also have her book right here. Oh. My <laughs> it's as if we coordinated, but she um, her book is called Women Without Men, Single Mothers and Family Change in the New Russia and is exactly about all those topics you just talked about. She's a, a gender sociologist. Right, it's very, very interesting. And mind you, this is you know, the beginning of the semester, I have introduced myself once, but I don't really know her. And I came up to her after class and I was like, hi, Professor Utrata, I have this idea. Can I come into your office hours? Um, and then I was basically, you know, I just told her my idea. I was like, I, I would, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Is this a possibility? Like I'm more than ready to collect signatures, host a rally, whatever. And she was like, you know, that's not really necessary. Like, you don't really need, <laughs> she was like, you don't really need to have, a, like, people sign things. Like, 
it's kind of just a matter of what you think interest would be. Um, and then we had set a deadline. We were like, let's talk in a little bit. Let's talk about maybe bringing on another professor who could co-teach the class. Let's think about what it would count towards. Let's think about who's going to do the research. Um, and I was really, really excited to take on all the research to, you know, put together the syllabus and the process in which a class gets created is a professor or anybody kind of puts, the professor needs to teach it, but I have now learned that any body of people can get together and come up with an idea, um, whether it's the professor or somebody else comes up with like a class, you know, a course document and you have all the things that the class is going to read and assignments and such. And then the professor presents it to the registrar. It gets approved, denied, whatever. Um, and then you kind of just go from there. And I was like, that sounds easy enough. Like I'll, you know, I'll do the research. I'll put together the syllabus. Let's, you know, talk and make sure that we're on the same page. And, you know, that's kind of what I've been up to lately is putting together the syllabus and finding, finding out as much information as I can, thinking about what's going to be interesting. You know, how do I want this class to look? What do I want it to teach people? What do I want people to take away from this? How can I make this class exciting for people that don't identify as female. I think that's important because a lot of the times this is considered a woman's issue, which it is not. <laughs> um, but so that's, that's been kind of what I've been keeping myself busy with lately. Um, and we were, Professor Utrada and I had agreed that we were kind of going to wait until summer to really start working with it. And then the other professor um, was going to chime in and it was, we were really just going to collaborate until we got back together in the fall and then, you know, it would go from there. But um, an update in this is that the second professor who is going to co-teach the class has actually left the university. She is going to teach at another university, which is very exciting for her, an amazing opportunity, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, and the pandemic does <laughs> throw a bit of a wrench in our plans um, Professor Utrada is um, kind of juggling with what semester works best for her and her personal decision to go on research sabbatical. So obviously that plays a huge role in this. Um, so the most recent update that I have is she teaches a gender work and globalization class, and which is a pretty popular class on campus. And she is thinking about kind of morphing that into something that can look more at maternity, family planning, I'm hoping, but again, it is her class at this point. So I'm kind of hoping that we can work together. So it sounds like these, I, these ideals and these principles that I was really, really excited about, I get to just join into another class, which is exciting because I think that it will really help out with kind of the following um, and it will probably have a lot more people register for the class, which is exciting. Um, and then I'm also planning on probably doing my own research next year. So I'll apply for a research grant this year um, and then hopefully go on research, like a, a research term next summer. So that's kind of where, where we're at right now. And it is a lot different than I had initially anticipated, um, you know, but again, so is the next year of our lives. So 
I'm really, really grateful that I will still be able to have an impact on this class and still get the word out about family planning in one small way. Um, and also think about that in a globalized perspective is something that I'm also really excited for. So I'm still just as excited for the project. It's just going to look a lot differently than I had anticipated. But again, so are a lot of things. Well, and one of the things that I think is so interesting as I was listening to you talk about how this evolved is that when you want to talk about or learn about or teach about anything involving human beings, it's pretty hard to do that in a vacuum. Absolutely. <laughs> so to your point about how family planning is not a women's issue, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> also, not just a medical issue. No. It's also not just an economic issue. It's also not just a geographic issue, right? Because in order to, let's say that you're on the pill, well, do you have access to a care provider? <laughs> right. Do you have access to transportation? How far are you from the place that you're going to have to go to pick up your birth control? Then there's a question of socially, how acceptable is it to be on birth control, right? Do you need to be doing that secretly? Right. Is it easy for you to move around in your society and to access those types of resources? Do you have the money, right? Then right. those are all individual considerations. Big picture, you obviously know this, but like when women can space out their pregnancies, they tend to have fewer children. Their health tends to be better. Maternal child mortality goes right. down. Women are able to manage and space out their pregnancies. Mm -hmm. It um, allows women to work. Generally, households where women have access to family planning and to birth control tend to have higher household incomes. So with all of that in mind, there's a lot that you need to understand and think about just to think about this one issue before you even get out into how it connects to all the other ways we think about things, right? Why would we maybe presume that birth control is a women's issue? Right. right. Where does that come from? There's all kinds of really good sociological work about well, why do we think of the home as a woman's sphere of that sort of domestic sphere. What's happened historically to make us think that mm -hmm. what continues to happen socially, why have we not sort of collectively cast that as work in society? There's a sociologist out of Berkeley, Arlie Hochschild, who does some really interesting work. She wrote the book, The Second Shift, mm -hmm. which is now a phrase that is um, in the world sort of separate and apart from that book. But the idea that if you are a woman in a developed country in the United States who works, then when you come home, you come home to your other job, right? right. To your second Absolutely. shift at home, but it's not paid work. We don't think about it quite as often in economic terms, right? Well, where does all that fit in with this? Right. To, to your point earlier, you can kind of go out in concentric circles mm -hmm. on and on and on into this as a huge interlocking idea. Absolutely. And, you know, geographically, those situations change drastically. Mm. Um, I am, you know, being a, a global development studies minor, I'm particularly interested in um, developing countries and developing communities and, you know, how are those different than the United States and, you know, what are the seen or unseen benefits or disadvantages. Um, and what's interesting is in the United States, and this is what you were talking about, is that in the United States, there's, especially for women that, you know, are working mothers, you have this work life, like you go to work and then you come home to your second work, which is, you know, the home. But 
how in, in more developing countries, how does that affect the children who are girls? And, you know, what does it mean when, you know, electricity is an issue? So maybe light source is an issue. So, you know, if the girls are typically doing the housework first, that means getting the cooking and cleaning done first. And then by the time it's time to do homework or to, you know, read, electricity might be an issue. There is not Right. There's not enough, there's no daylight left. So um, it's about understanding where that all comes from. And, you know, let's say a family has four children, two of them are boys and two of them are girls. The boys are going to have, historically, the boys are going to have more of an opportunity to do their schoolwork than the girls are because the girls are tasked with more responsibilities. Now, if there were two children, one boy and one girl, it would be more likely that they could split that time and it wouldn't be, they also wouldn't be cleaning up for a family of six. It would be a family of four, which also makes a difference. Um, and, and, and it just centralizes the family's resources, right? Right. If you have two kids, if you can afford school fees for two kids, then you don't have to choose between your children. Exactly. That was my point. And then, um, well, it's, it's interesting the way that we talk about this because I, so I read, I read Factfulness by Hans Rosling, and Hans Rosling was a world-renowned um, public health specialist and traveled the world doing things for public health, and for lack of better words. But um, he died in 2017 at 66, so unfortunately he fell ill to cancer. But the last few years of his life, he dedicated to what he calls data therapy, which is educating people about how, yes, the world is scary and on fire and bad, but not that bad and a lot better than we were 30 years ago. And there's a lot of things that, you know, people think that the world is on fire and these situations are terrible. And yes, they are terrible. We can't forget about that. But it's important to remember how far we have come. Um, If anybody hasn't read Factfulness, I cannot recommend it enough. It is so, so important. And the book starts out with like a 10 question quiz of the world. And the questions are like, how many women are educated compared to men? Or what is the average number of households in the world that have electricity? What is, you know, what is the projected climate change for the next 10 years? And his, the interesting thing is that he took this quiz with him everywhere he went and he presented in front of government officials, other public health specialists, you know, high up officials who they're, it's their job to know the answer to these questions. And what he found was that people just believe the worst thing possible. And people just, you know, believe that, (laughs) that, you know, oh, like the world, we just need to save all of these, these things, which, you know, again, is true, but um, he has a chapter in that book about family planning, and he talks about the average number of children per woman across the world now is only, I believe, 2.8 or something like that. And in some um, Asian countries where that number was a lot higher, it is now like, you know, 2.3. So it's really not that bad. And oftentimes in my research, I'll find myself expecting one country to have four children per woman. And I see the numbers like 1.8. And for a very, very split second, I'm like, darn it, can't look at that country. But then I realize how incredible that is and what an incredible change that is. And that, 
you know, this, this umbrella of family planning is something that I'm late to the game to. And turns out people have been working on for quite some time. And that is both really exciting and humbling at the same time. Sophie, I could talk to you about this all day, <laughs> but all good things must come to an end. Right. <laughs> ask you the four questions that we ask everybody to wrap up. Okay. The first question is, what's your favorite place on campus? You know, <laughs> I have so many answers. Um, also, I feel like the answers are different for what the weather is. If it's sunny outside, definitely Todd Field. Um, but if it's a rainy day, I really like being in diversions because, and that's different than my favorite study spot on campus. I, and I don't know if that's one of the other questions, but it's not. So let's do it now as a bonus. Okay. <laughs> so I love diversions when it's raining outside because of the sunroof and the glass, like the glass wall. So, um, it's just really nice to look outside and favorite study spot is the front tables of the library. What are you reading right now? Right now, I actually just finished a book yesterday. Um, I read the entire book start to finish yesterday. It's how bored I was yesterday. Um, and it was What Unites Us by Dan Rather, who was a CBS journalist for about 40 years. Um, so he spent his entire life traveling the United States and pulling lessons and stories from people. So um, I just finished that up. And then today I started continued reading Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Hmm. What's the best place to eat in Tacoma? Uh, honestly, I want to say the Tacoma Farmer's Market. I feel like that's different than maybe my favorite restaurant, but I feel like that is the best place to get food. And to top things off today, why is Puget Sound special? Definitely the people. Um, the people are unmatched, unbridled in their curiosity and just so welcoming and accepting and warm and kind and just joyful, I think. Sophie Semenjuk, <laughs> thank you for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to P.S. the Puget Sound podcast. If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for P.S. the Puget Sound podcast.